0: The first reading is from Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left... The great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine, wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. The second reading is from Joel 2. Blow the the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other, each marches straight ahead they plunge through defences without breaking ranks they rush up they rush upon the city they run along the wall they climb into the houses like thieves they enter through the windows before them the earth shakes the heavens tremble, tremble. the sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine the lord thunders at his head of the army at the head of the army His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God.
1: So what do you got, this army, or these locusts uh, decimating the land, but this little note of hope, this turning point, who knows, he may turn and relent and leave a blessing grain offerings and drink offerings to the Lord our God. And then you get this certainty. Who knows is answered within Joel. Page 13, uh, Joel 2 verse 18. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn among the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you Pushing it into a parched and barren land, its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea, its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea, and its central will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. And then you get this over-the-top promise, Joel 2.25. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten the great locust and the young locust and the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. The day of the lo- uh, and afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, King David said the sacrifices acceptable to God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Father, break our hearts and then put them back together again, restore them, renew them. In your love. Show us your holiness, O God. Show us then your grace and remove from us a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. For Christ's sake. Amen. So, what to make of that? Hmm? Let's get into it. Remember last week, if you were here, uh, while my wife and I were on long service leave, our little Betsy, three years old, would regularly climb up and put a little ear onto my chest and say, Dada, can I hear your heartbeat? Can I hear your heartbeat? We're in a series on the 12 minor prophets. Why? Because when you read the prophets, you hear God's heartbeat. It's like you have a window inside the heart of God so you can look look around or even walk around in his heart for a little while. If I can mix my metaphors. The minor prophets is God speaking to Israel in the north and Judah in the south in her darkest moments, but the prophets help us to experience God as he is, not simply as you'd like him to be. The idea of the series is simple one prophet each week for 12 weeks with a little break in between. And each week we'll have one big idea leading to one glorious saviour. And today we're looking at the prophet. Joel. It's worth us repeating that the prophets were a wild bunch. They disrupted lives. They bugged kings. And they challenged baseline cultural narratives. And they were wild. Author Frederick Buechner once wrote, the prophets were drunk on God. Not on alcohol. They were drunk on God. And in the presence of their terrible tipsiness, no one was ever comfortable. With a total lack of tact, they roared out against phoniness and corruption. Wherever they found them, they were the terror of kings and priests. In other words, they didn't want friends. They wanted converts. They wanted change. One such prophet is the prophet Joel. Now, what's unique about Joel among the prophets? What's unique is that he alone never outlines what sin Judah has committed. He doesn't say, you've done this, why'd you do that? Or you ought to have done that. He assumes that the people already know, perhaps because other prophets have come ahead of him. What he does instead is tell the people what to do about it, how to respond. And consequently, it's a very emotional book. Did you feel that when it was read? Filled with urgent imperatives so Joel is about responding to God, God has a passion that protects his people but it's also a passion that provokes a response I say this because it's very easy to react to anything or anyone else but God even if you come to church you can not come up against God but come up against other things and think you're responding to God We need to be careful about this because that's just what the Israelites did back then. I'll give you some examples. Israel didn't always respond to God as he is. Instead, they responded to all the things that helped them feel secure. For example, they responded very keenly to positive preachers. The sort that said, no disaster will come upon you. They loved them. They responded very strongly to traditional values. They'd say, look, we've got the temple in Jerusalem, we can't be touched. Or they responded to other religions, the ones that seemed more attractive, especially the ones that said, do what you want sexually. And in the ancient Near East, there was plenty of religions that said, "You know, here's your path to happiness they respond to the world politics and politicians so they said things like assyria will save us we can be the same on every front for example rather than respond to god you can find security elsewhere like a you know house holiday family work and they feel like they can sort of redeem us so we cling on to them and they become sort of baseline god in our lives In the scriptures, they're just called idols. And in the church, it's tempting to respond to worship styles, this music, those words, why are you doing this, why are you doing that? People often tend to respond to one person or a particular preacher. and They think, I can't respond to God. I'm responding to one person's words. Or they respond to God by merely connecting to a particular doctrinal position Tick boxes here and there, or I think probably one of the strongest ones is they respond to God by bristling and responding to church culture. Now all those things are real; they're very real. But we need to come up against the face of God. We need to respond to God as He is, not simply as we'd like Him to be. Can I ask show of hands? Has anybody here actually met my father? Put down if you've met my dad. He comes to church here on occasions. Okay, for those of you who've not met him, I could, as an experiment say, tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock, if he's free, I didn't, I didn't ask him this. I say, tomorrow morning, I want you to meet my father. You could organize a response ahead of time. I know how I'll respond to him. I'll. Well, I'll tell you what you'll do, it's because we're Westerners, you'll be polite, you'll shake his hand and you'll say, hey, how do you do? But that's the only response you can sort of organize before meeting him, actually coming up against the face of Michael Moffat. He might bug you. He might bother you. You might like him. He might like you. You can't say what the chemistry will be before you've actually met a person. Meeting someone for real is the only genuine way to respond to them. You can't decide your response ahead of time. Well, the prophet Joel can help you to meet your God. We don't know a lot about Joel. We know the name of his dad, chapter 1, verse 1. His dad's name is Pethuel. We don't know when the was writ- prophecy was written. It's not dated. Although most scholars presume that he is 6th century before Christ. And that he's speaking to Judah in the south. Just before the Babylonian army rolled in on them like locusts. From the north in 587 BC. An actual dated historical figure. But as I said before, Joel's unique contribution to the prophets is that he tells Judah how to respond. And there's an answer to the question, how to respond to God. And the answer is with tears. With tears. So two questions tonight. Who are we responding to? And secondly, what then is an appropriate response? Let's meet the dad, right? Who are we responding to? The answer is God. God. We're coming up against his face, and as we come up against his face and react to him, what do we discover? We discover he's a God who has zeal, jealousy, passion. So four things about our passionate God that you can gain from the narrative of, of Joel as it goes from beginning to end with, with such brevity, but such swings of of emotion. So first, at the beginning God expresses anger. Just, settled, strong, persistent anger, wrath. Like the other prophets, Joel doesn't grease his audience. He doesn't check in with his marketing manager. There's no little hook, no funny story, no line to get you in. Chapter one, verse two, he just stands up to Judah and says, hear this you elders, listen. Listen up, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this, what is this? Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? I want you to tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children of the next generation. In other words, you are not gonna believe your ears about this thing, but you will tell this story for generations to come, which is why we have the book in our hands today. But this is big. And what is big? That God is justly angry and that to express his anger, he is going to send some locusts to devastate the land. And later he's going to say, he'll be thundering at the head of his army. So chapter 1 verse 4, and if we were agrarian, we'd get this living in northern New South Wales, we'd get this stronger. I'm going to draw a distinction between what's happening here and what's happening in the drought now. But we'd get it if we did. Chapter 1, verse 4, follow with me. What the locust swarm has left after that, the great locusts of Eden. And after the great locusts have left, the young locusts of Eden. And what the young locusts have left, the other locusts of Eden. In other words, there's no grain left. Now, you might say, well, what an odd God I'm being asked to respond to. Well, maybe, but I do not get to make this up. It's not, I didn't write it. Now, where did that idea come from? Now, I can imagine a farmer in New South Wales thinking, wow, well, I'm experiencing drought, and that locusts came in and ate what little was left. We should pray for them, by the way, and we should pray for farmers. But this does not apply, not directly, to any of the drought that's happening in Australia. And I know that because God has made a special covenant with Israel and not with Australia. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38, God says to Israel, if you love me, the vines and the fig trees will grow. You'll have more than enough. But if you reject me, says God, I'll send locusts. The fig tree will be withered. The vines will, will, uh, will not produce fruit. And in particular, Deuteronomy 28, verse 38, I'll send locusts to the land to destroy it now there may have actually been locusts an agricultural nightmare or the locusts more likely are a metaphor for an army coming from the north you can see it in chapter 2 verse verse 1 look at this blow the trumpet sound the alarm let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming This moment it is close at hand it'll be a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and blackness by the way some of you are already thinking about good friday when darkness came over the land but there's this army of locusts or the locusts as an army is the day of the lord verse 2 chapter 2 verse 2 Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times nor ever will be in ages to come. And then in verse six, chapter two, verse six, you get this focused picture of the Babylonian army as locusts not jostling. Uh, Chapter two, verse six, at the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls over Jerusalem, for example, like soldiers. They all march in line, boom, 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 not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other, etc., etc., etc. And we know from history that the Babylonian army is terribly disciplined and fierce and destructive and fearsome. What's being said here? Well, I'll tell you one thing that's being said is that might isn't necessarily right in the sense that you don't need to be afraid of Babylon. God is, in fact, thundering at the head of his army. Now, that presents another set of problems. Nonetheless, what's being said here is that God has set a day, a day of darkness, gloom, clouds and dark and distress, for Judah, when his anger will be expressed. That's who we're responding to. Now that's scary stuff, and if that's all we were responding to, our response will be fear-based. And the Apostle John warns against a mere fear-based response. Fear is a powerful catalyst. <gasps> but a terrible master. And so within minutes of this prophecy starting, Joel then speaks of God not as divine judge coming in anger but of a gracious God who's slow to anger. So the first thing to say is that God is angry. Second thing to say is the God of second chances. I'm so glad of this. Chapter two, verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me. How? With all your heart, not half your heart. Return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. He says, rend or rip your heart. Don't rip your garments. In other words, don't fake it, because you can fake it. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he's gracious. That's the reason why. And you're like, what? Because he's compassionate. What about those locusts? Slow to anger. That didn't sound like that a moment ago. And abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. But still you've got this moment. He might. It's possible that he could be kind to us and gracious. Gracious. Now this raises a problem. What is it to be? I have one piece of the puzzle. Is it judgment, chapter one, or is it grace and mercy, chapter two? And I've got these pieces and they're not fitting together, right? One level, God is saying He'll punish, and another saying He won't punish or He'll have compassion. And you're like, I feel like I'm missing a piece of the puzzle. Now we're getting to the heart of God. Now we can hear His heartbeat. We're getting close to the missing piece in the puzzle, namely the cross of Jesus Christ. So as a God of second chances, and then he flips again, and, he, and then in chapter 2, verse 18, it's like, not just he might be kind, but he will be kind. Chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord will be jealous for his land. Not like jealous as in, can not check your text messages, or your text. I need to text. Not like that jealous. And we'll explore this in the prophecy of Zephaniah, but this... Passion for this marriage he has with Israel. He's jealous for the land and took pity on his people. And the Lord replied to them, chapter 2, verse 19, I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. It's like there's a resurrection after the death. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations and I will drive the northern army, horde, far from you. So verse 21, do not be afraid, land of Judah, Be glad and rejoice. He'll give Judah the good he promised. He'll keep his covenant and he'll remove his wrath from them and give them the good things promised. But it's not just begrudging either. And this is what you learn in the fourth thing about God here. It's not just, I'm going to destroy it. Maybe I won't. Yes, I'll give you the land back. But then he says, I'll actually share myself. God is abounding in his love, sharing of his heart. He promises to pour out his spirit on all flesh. This grand present moment of redemption, this day is not just darkness and gloom, it's God pouring out his spirit. Chapter 2, verse 28, and afterwards, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, this new work of God, right down to verse 32, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a beautiful promise and a wonderful passage. And there's so much to say there. I'd love to concentrate on that passage alone, and perhaps you can explore it in groups. But I do want to make this one point God doesn't have to be so generous as to give us his spirit. He could forgive me. He could place me back in the land that he's promised. But here he says, I will will share my heartbeat with you. I'll remove your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh, as the prophet Ezekiel said, and pour my spirit in you and enliven you and quicken you. To those who call on his name, that's what a Christian is, by the way, a person who calls upon the name of the Lord, it's not only salvation from his anger, no condemnation, but out of the overflow of his person, you receive his heart, his own spirit. So what's going on here? That's Joel, by the way, in a nutshell. You go read it. It's a fair summary. I once read this whole prophecy to a bunch of 17-year-olds. And one young fellow who didn't believe, he was a skeptic, 17 years old, he says, "What God? what's God doing here? He said to me, uh, it feels like God's sort of schizophrenic. I had a two-minute conversation with him about the use of that word, um, but interesting to hear him say that, you know, this sort of sense that God seems like he's flipping. What's he doing? He's angry here, and he might not be angry, then I'm definitely not going to be angry, and I'll pour out my spirit on you. What's up with God? Said my not-yet-believing friend. And my answer to him was this, he's a caring God. He cares about you. He cares about the wrong you do and have done. He sees it, but he's a zealous God, a jealous God, an engaged God, an involved God. He cares about whether you'll be saved. He cares about whether you love him back. For when I care about someone, I care about what they do. I care about how I'm treated by them and about how they treat other people. I'm not indifferent to their actions towards me nor their attitude towards others nor their plight. You know the old question, what's the opposite of love? What's the opposite of love? People naturally want to say hate. The opposite of love... Is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. For when I love you, I care about what you do. I even confront you because I care. But I encourage you. When I do not love you, I do not care about what you do, and I do not care about your plight. It's often said that the worst thing to happen in a marriage, which is another covenant relationship, by the way, the worst thing that can happen in a marriage is that one of the parties goes cold. That's the worst thing. Fire isn't the problem. Cold is the problem. God does not go cold on us. Here's an example of that sort of love in action. I had a friend once, a dear friend. I was walking, this is pre-marriage, I was walking with her down um, Gleapont Road, uh, where I used to live, and uh, I was talking my head off, about, I don't know, this person or that person or these politics or that politician or whatever, and I must have been speaking uh, with a level of certainty and rudely because my friend stopped in her tracks and I sort of turned around and said, what? And she looked back and said, Justin, you're so selfish. You're so rude about other people. Arrogant, in your heart. I stopped in my place, and you know, it was one of those moments, you need people like this in your life, you know? Perhaps words of prophecy, quite frankly. I sat there in the gutter, uh, literally the gutter of Gleapong Road, you know what I'm talking about? Sandstone. I put my head in my hands like this, and I'm like, I said, nothing. there's nothing I could say. Uh, And in the silence of saying nothing, I had two simultaneous thoughts. Number one, you're right. I am like that. And number two, you really mean it. Um, Your anger shows it. You know, what did we learn last week? The prophet's quarrel is God's quarrel. It's a lover's quarrel. If the prophets didn't love the world, they wouldn't bother telling it it was going to hell. My friend cared, and caring is a wonderful thing, and that comes right out of the heart of God. So if this is the God we're responding to, what then is an appropriate response? Now you've met him, it's 11 o'clock. Does he bug you? Does he delight you? Does he thrill you? Do you want to run away? Do you want to run towards? I can't govern your response by No one can govern your response. But the prophet Joel tells you what an appropriate one would be. And that would be to read Joel or read Jesus. And then sit in the gutter. Not literally or might be literally. but And for many of us it will mean tears. It may not be literal tears by the way. Some of us find ourselves crying not very much. For whatever reason, right? but for all of us, it means something like <gasps> putting your head in your hands and sit in silence and realize I need to do business with God. I can't be detached any longer. i lodge an apology. There it is. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping. And morning, and here's an exercise for you. Read through the whole of Joel, maybe on the bus on the way home. Get a pen out and read, every, underline every imperative. Sorry, you're back at school. I'm your English teacher. Every call to action, negative or positive. I'll give you some examples. On one hand, Joel says, chapter one, verse five, wake up. There's one. Wake up and weep and wail. Chapter one, verse eight, mourn. Chapter one, verse 11, despair. Chapter 1, verse 13, put on sackcloth and mourn and wail. Some of us need to feel the weight of our present lack of interest in God, our half-hearted response to his call to follow. Some of us need to deal with past sin instead of defending it, even to ourselves. But when you do this, this weep, this wail, this mourn, or whatever that looks like for you, when you do that, You discover that God's not a God who says, good, I'm glad you're down there in the gutter. I've been waiting for you to be in the gutter for a long time. Like we imagine people doing when they confront us without caring. No, no sooner do we sit in the gutter in our hearts than he gets in there with us and lifts us up. That's why in the old, early church, they said, lift up your hearts and the people respond, we well, listen up to the Lord. And God gives his spirit to us, and then he walks with us. Weep and wail and mourn. It turns out that the tears of the penitent form the wine of the angels. Or as Indiana Jones said, only the penitent will pass. On one hand. On the other hand, you've got chapter 2, verse 21. Don't be afraid. Be glad. Rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Call upon the name of the Lord. So what's the missing piece? <clears throat> we find out that the day of the Lord, which for Judah was a Babylonian army coming in, with a date, 587 BC. But for followers of Jesus Christ, we realize that the day of the Lord, the day of clouds and blackness and darkness, when that darkness rolled over the land, that day, as the New Testament testifies, is this. It's the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross, where God meted out his anger so that he could share his love and forgiveness. And in his resurrection, seated on high, he pours out his spirit on those who call upon the name of the Lord. So we don't respond to God in the abstract. We don't need to respond to God in the abstract. We respond to a God in his incarnation and his spirit. By faith, we come up against his face. And when you see God act in Mount Zion in Jerusalem, what do you see? You see God ripping himself apart. He says, rip your heart apart, not your garments. But what you find in the gospel is God ripping his heart apart. On the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Precisely because he doesn't want to forsake you. He wants to give you home and life in him. That's the kind of God we're responding to, a God who loves us to death. And that's why our main response must be to call upon the name of the Lord. It's why the prodigal son, sitting in the pigsty of his own choices, says, I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before the son can even get out the words, the father kills the fattened calf and says, my son was dead but is alive again. He was lost and he's found. He pours out his love. That's why King David, another model for us, having committed a sexual sin in the past, thought that he could cover it up, but still feeling its weight, especially when the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, you're destroying lives. David writes, Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, O God, and the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit I'm happy about a broken spirit knowing that God binds it up again. I'm not afraid of a broken spirit. It's just the truth. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And it's why when God poured out his spirit in Acts chapter 2, tongues afar, the presence of God, Peter finishes by saying, Therefore be that all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucify, both Lord and Messiah. He is the new king. When the people heard this, we're told, they were cut to the heart, very Joel, cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, as Joel does, repent, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We discover that he is a passion that protects, but is also a passion that provokes. Let's pray. Father, here is your heartbeat, and it is it is it beats to grace and love towards us in Jesus Christ, towards sinners like me, ones who deserve your wrath, who quite frankly deserve the locusts to consume me, but. Christ was consumed for me. Father, you thundered at the head of that army, that Babylonian army, but now you move towards us through Jesus Christ, showering us with grace and mercy for you are a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And so we lodge an apology. We here now confess our sins. We're about to do it in a moment's time by these prayers, by these um, songs we're going to sing, by the prayer of confession that we're going to be let in. But we do it here as well. We, we do it and we claim forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. We claim your spirit. We claim it for Christ's glory. Amen.